So today is the first week of a new sermon series, but before we begin the series, I want to let you know that this is actually part of a, a bigger project. In fact, this is year two of what I expect will be a 20-plus year project. The idea is that every year for our back-to-school sermon series, we'll focus on a couple of characters from Scripture, eventually covering a, a broad overview of the major players in the Bible. We started last year with the story of Adam and Eve, the very first two characters in the Bible, obviously. And believe it or not, uh, we've already started talking about the characters whose stories we're going to be exploring next year for Back to School 2022. This year, we're focusing on the story of Abraham and Sarah, the couple whose faithful response to God's call marks the beginning of our salvation history. I'm doing a uh, similar project, by the way, in my Sunday night uh, Bible study. The past two years, I've taught what we call the Bible in 50, which was a, an overview of Scripture over the course of 50 class meetings. Many of you participated in that two-year study. Beginning in September, just a few weeks, I'm starting a new class called Between the Lines. And each week, we're going to be taking a, a or sorry, each semester, we're going to take a deep dive on a particular book of the Bible. We're going to alternate between Old Testament in the fall and New Testament in the winter slash spring. We're going to launch uh, the class next week, or next month rather, it, with the book of Genesis, which makes sense. I hope that many of you will consider joining us for that study. Having said all that, today we begin a series that we're calling It's Complicated, because it is complicated. Abraham is a beloved figure, a foundational figure in our faith history for very good reasons that we're going to spend the next four weeks exploring. Sarah, by the way, is just as important a figure, although she uh, often gets left out of the narrative, as is too often the case with women in the Bible. But at every step of the way in their story, things are uh, more complicated than they at first appear maybe more complicated than we remember them being if we're familiar with these stories. We're actually not going to begin at the beginning of the, uh, of the story of Abraham and Sarah. The story opens in chapter 12 with what's called the call of Abraham. Uh, God shows up out of the blue one day and he tells, actually Abram as he was known at the time, to pack up his family and his stuff and get on the road to a place that God would show him when he got there. God promises to richly bless Abram if he accepts this offer of relationship. And famously, Genesis records three words to describe Abram's response. So Abram went. We read that Abram and Sarai, as she was known at the time, and Abram's nephew Lot packed up their stuff and their animals uh, and their servants and they traveled to the promised land. We read that God tells Abram, I, to your offspring, I will give this land. And then we read that a famine drove them to Egypt for a time. Famine is a recurring theme throughout the book of Genesis. It must have been a common occurrence in the ancient world. We read how after their return from the famine in Egypt, Lot and Abram actually separate. They go uh, separate ways. And God tells Abram, quote, raise your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. 
But through those first few chapters of the story of Abraham and Sarah, there remains one massively glaring problem. Abram and Sarai, as they're known at this point, are advanced in age, they're well past childbearing years, and they remain childless. The promise of land had been fulfilled, but they had no heir to inherit it. As we pick up the story in chapter 15, some indeterminate amount of time has passed from God's initial call to the setting of our text for today. So we're, we're actually going to read all of the chapter, all of chapter 15. It's not long, it's 21 verses total. I'm going to read the first six verses now, and then we'll come back to the rest later. So listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the author of Genesis. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You've given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, no one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Of the 50 chapters in Genesis, there are a total of 14 about Abraham. That's more than a quarter of the chapters of Genesis. Of these 14 chapters, some biblical scholars believe that, that chapter 15 contains the oldest material about Abram's covenant with God. We're going to read in a few minutes the, the details of that covenant or some of the details of that covenant. Walter Brueggemann, in his commentary on Genesis, argues that, that this is the most important chapter in the entire Abraham narrative because it captures kind of the essence of the relationship between Abram and God. Now, if you've been in the church a while, and if you know much about the story of Abraham and Sarah, and if you're perhaps familiar with the New Testament references to Abraham— you may consider Abraham to be the biblical ideal of faith. The Apostle Paul, in his letters both to the Romans and to the Galatians, and then later in the letter of James, they all make a reference to the last verse we just read. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. In the Christian tradition, we look back to the patriarch of our salvation history, and we see in him uh, the paragon of trust in God, which is a reputation that he richly deserves, for sure. But it is a bit more complicated than that. At the beginning of what may be the most important chapter in this vitally important story of our faith, God shows up and he seems to know that Abram is anxious. Do not be afraid, God says, I'm going to take care of you. But then Abram offers a, a double protest. It's as if he's saying, you know, look, God, I, I did what you asked me to do. I picked up and I left my old life, which was not all that bad, by the way. 
I had plenty of wealth, I had plenty of livestock, I had plenty of land to graze them on. You said that you would give Sarai and me children, or at least a child, specifically a male child who can inherit my stuff and land. But here I am with my stuff and my livestock in a new land and still no heir. In other words, Abram's wondering why God has not delivered on the offer that God had made back when God called. And then before God can even answer, Abram says it a second time in a slightly different way. Abram was, he was plenty wealthy, he was plenty prosperous, he was plenty prestigious when God called him out of the blue. Now he's just wealthy, prosperous, and prestigious in a different place. The one thing that he really wants, the one thing that God had offered but not yet delivered was the one thing that Abram wanted most of all. So after telling Abram not to fear, God gives him what amounts to a revelation. It may not seem like a revelation upon a quick reading of the text, but it is a revelation that's intended to comfort the deepest longing of Abram's and of Sarai's soul. Look up at the stars, God says, so numerous shall your descendants be. And here, I really think we need to put ourselves in Abram's shoes. At this point of his life, he's an old man who has risked everything on the word of a God he had not known. A God who had offered him land, which he did not need, (laughs) and an heir, which he wanted most of all. A God who had provided the land, but not yet the heir. And the fundamental question that Abram has to answer in this moment Uh, staring up into the darkness of the sky and marveling at the outrageous offer God has made. The fundamental question that Abram has to answer for himself in this moment is whether or not he thinks God is trustworthy. And his feelings on this have to be complicated. God had offered no proof after all. God had not performed any miracles after all. God had not even offered any miraculous sign in the darkness of the night sky after all. Now, in retrospect, with the benefit of hindsight, we know that Abram decides that God is indeed trustworthy. He believes that God is the God of beginnings, which is what Genesis means after all. We know in retrospect He believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. But that trust is accompanied by action, what some might call acts of faith. Let's finish the text. Then God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Again, <laughs> what is my sign? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these and cut them in two, laying each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain, 
that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs and shall be slaves there and they shall be oppressed for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your ancestors in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Amen. So the Olympics uh, closed today. Closing ceremonies are airing uh, tonight. I don't know about you, but I, I find the Olympics to be incredibly compelling, especially the Summer Olympics. I'm a much bigger Summer Olympics fan than Winter Olympics. I know that there's plenty to be jaded about in sports, to be sure, uh, but there is a purity in raw athletic competition. I still get a tremendous patriotic pride welling within me as I'm cheering for our U.S. athletes, and I have long since identified much more with the parents of the athletes than the athletes themselves. So this year, I have been particularly moved by all the watch parties of the families and parents who couldn't make it to Tokyo because of COVID. Three days before the Tokyo Olympics opened, the current president of the International Olympic Committee uh, quoted the founder of the IOC, who long ago said, the Olympic Games are a pilgrimage to the past and an act of faith in the future. With the delay of the games from last summer and all the uncertainty leading up to the games this summer and the fact that there were no spectators or family or friends allowed in the venues, showing up on the field had to have been an act of faith for these athletes. And while I don't think the president of the IOC was necessarily talking about God, I was delighted this week that God still showed up on international TV. If you were watching, you know what I'm talking about. It was Tuesday night. In one of the most incredible races you will ever see, I was a track and field athlete in high school. I love the track and field events. And in this particular race, two American women finished first and second in the 400-meter hurdles. They're the only two women ever to, to break 52 seconds in the event. And they ended up running a race for the ages with both of them breaking the existing world record. And in the post-race interview, the new Olympic champion and world record holder, Sydney McLaughlin, who is very open about her Christian faith, gave glory to God. It's one of the first things she said when they put a microphone in her face. And this was not in the uh, God has a plan and wanted me to win kind of way. I'm not crazy about that theology. This was in the um, thanks be to God for the gifts God has given me kind of way, which I love and which I also found to be particularly a, a poignant moment, a poignant statement for these athletes who have gone through so much over the past year and a half. Sydney McLaughlin waited and she trusted and she continued to train, believing that she would get her shot. And at the moment of her greatest victory on international TV, she expressed her gratitude to God, the one who she knows is her constant companion. 
even, uh, perhaps better said, especially in the trying times. And I loved it because it was a, a vivid reminder of the fact that, that acts of faith are very much reflective of where we are in our lives at, a, at any given moment, which is to say, for each of us, acts of faith and trust in God are contextual to that particular season of our lives. For Sidney McLaughlin, in that moment, the most important thing was her ability to run well. For all of us, our acts of faith take different forms. And I think it's striking that immediately after that famous verse about Abram believing God, this verse that is cited several times in the New Testament by different authors to lift up Abram as a model of faith, right after that verse, he still asks God for a sign. And I love even more that God obliges. For Abram's part, he offers a sacrifice in an act of worship described uh, in what many scholars believe is the oldest portion of the text, this bit about cutting the animals in half and laying one half against the other. That probably reflects some of the most ancient customs of our faith ancestors. And in response, God shows up, as God always does, in this case, appearing to Abram in the deep darkness of a dream. It's a darkness that echoes the night sky in which Abram sees the sign of countless future descendants. And then there's that enigmatic uh, appearance of the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. Whatever's going on there, those are both visual affirmations that Abram had nothing to fear, but he does have to have patience, as we're going to see in the coming weeks of this series. Because, as Walter Brueggemann notes in his commentary, the problem of faith is waiting, even when the delay seems unending. The pattern of faith shows up in the story of Abram and Sarai over and over again. God moves towards us always first. God is the first to invite us into a relationship, and our response to that is to trust God. And then once we trust God, we have to act accordingly. <laughs> And then, oftentimes, maybe, maybe most of the time, we have to wait to see what comes next. For Abram, God offered new land and descendants as numerous as the stars. We hear that Abram trusted, that Abram got on the road, that Abram worshiped God, and then waited for that heir to arrive. Years, as we'll find out in the coming weeks. And in the waiting, Abram overcomes whatever complicated feelings he has by believing God, by trusting God, by having faith that God will make good on the offer. And in that simple act of waiting, Abram teaches us that, that faith involves trust and it involves action and yes, I guess we could say unfortunately, involves patience. As followers of Jesus, we know that in our relationship with God, we have been offered a life of meaning and purpose and peace. We may not feel that every day of our discipleship. The Gospels tell us that in Christ, God offers us life eternal on the other side of the grave and life abundant on this side of the grave. But the thing is that God is not very specific about the timing of that abundant life. You know this if you've been a follower of Christ for very long, which I'm pretty sure is everyone here. God does not promise that life 
will be all abundant all the time. God does not promise that life will be without tears or struggles or pain or uncertainty. God just promises to be with us through it all and that it will somehow all be all right in the end. Because faith, as Abram teaches us, is about trust and it's about action and it's about patience. And at different times in our lives, we may need more of one than the others. Maybe you're working through a trying time right now and relying on trust that God is with you in the struggle. I promise you, God is with you in the struggle. Maybe you're in a season of your life that it's rough and you know it's going to pass, but you sure need some patience until it does. Maybe uh, it's your own acts of faith, whatever those look like for you today, that are helping you make it one day at a time wherever you find yourself in your own spiritual journey right now, wherever you are in your relationship with God right now, my prayer is that you might know deep in your heart and soul that you're in good company. And as it turns out, that company includes even the complicated story of Abram and Sarai. Thanks be to God. Amen.